Before we get started, a quick disclosure. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Nothing you hear is an offer or a solicitation to buy or sell any investment. And with that, hello and welcome to the Rangely Capital Podcast. I'm Andrew Walker, a portfolio manager at Rangely, and with me as always is my co-host and Rangely's founder, Chris DeMuth. It is Thursday, July 14th, and today we're going to start by talking about some interesting stories swirling around Tesla this week, and then we're going to switch to some updated thoughts on politics with the Republican convention right around the corner. Uh, so, Chris, Tesla was in the news quite a bit this week. There was kind of a threefold swirl of stories. The stories were uh, on Sunday night. Elon Musk tweeted that he was working on his top secret Tesla master plan part two, and Tesla shares went up 4% just on that tweet. Uh, then the Wall Street Journal disclosed that the SEC is investigating if Tesla breached security law by failing to disclose the uh, fatal auto crash that involved one of their vehicles on autopilot. And lastly, there was a Reuters story that said Elon Musk had bandied about, and that's a quote, bandied about, his idea of combining Tesla and SolarCity with several of his major shareholders over the past few months. And then obviously, Tesla, Tesla announced the bid for SolarCity in late June, and that is a deal we mentioned in our, our June 24th podcast, but it raises a lot of questions around selective disclosure and if he was revealing non-public information to uh, favorite shareholders. So lots to talk about. Uh, why don't we kick it off by talking about the master plan tweet? And uh, you want to start or you want me to hop in there? You know, uh, go for it. I need to be very sensitive on this one okay. because I am both a short Tesla and I'm a Tesla depositor. And I'm afraid that I'm going to be pushed to the back <laughs> of the line uh, whenever I mention uh, my so, uh, position uh, with that. So, it's a short, short te- I should say short Tesla and short Solar City. So I am writing in the disclosures. Chris yes. is short Tesla. And but short I hope Solar they don't City. hold that against me. Okay, so the master plan. Uh, I think it, it matters because like a lot of people might think it's strange. I can go out and tweet oh, I'm working on a master plan and my stock's up 4%. And yes, it is very strange. But in this case, there is a basis for it. In 2006, Elon Musk put out a uh, blog post that said, I think it was called the Secret Tesla Master Plan. And I think it said like between you and me or something. But in it, he unveiled he unveiled the cars that would become the Model S and the Tesla 3 sports sedans, which are mm-hmm. obviously hugely popular cars. Like Tesla literally cannot keep up with the demand for these cars, which is both an issue on their end, but also speaks to how wide love these cars are so i think a lot of people were thinking when this tweet was disclosed oh he's going to come out with something just as big as that uh we've seen some analysts who are talking about what it could be uh i think morgan stanley who has been the most outlandish in predicting things on tesla and the most accurate says that he thinks tesla they've got these skills now to unveil an autonomous electric powered public transportation thing think kind of uber but without the car so use the the automated drivers to uh, take people around the city. It could replace public transportation. Obviously, huge market, probably where the world is going long term, but it could be huge. Uh, I'll let you jump in with thoughts, or we can talk about why it's strange. Yeah, no, I think that uh, I think that sounds like a good theory on uh, on what it might be. Uh, clearly, uh, listening to and I've listened to all of the Elon Musk interviews recently, uh, kind of going in the direction of autonomy and everything. All the hardware is set up for that, so I think yeah. that that's really what his mind's on. Look, I think when you think Google, Google, Uber, and Tesla, their long-term plan is, you know, right now everyone owns their own ve- – most people own their own vehicles, mm-hmm. and your vehicle sits idle 90, 95, 98% of the time. I think the long-term plan with autonomous cars is 
you have cars that are just always going around the city. No one owns a car. One one or a couple corporations own cars. And when you need it, it's kind of an on-demand service. And, and then you need 5 or 10% as much hardware. Exactly, exactly. So that very well could be what he's unveiling. And if you think about the huge upside, if they're the first ones to capture that market, it makes sense that the shares and, would go up 4%. And I mean, just in terms of coordination, it's amazing. You know, you, you can uh, uh, dead leg... Uh, other people's use of a vehicle from point Mm -hmm. A to B if you need to go from B to A. And you can do the same thing with uh, errands and so many things. And then including things that you don't need to be in the car for. You send your car out to grab a quart of milk or something. Well, you wouldn't even own the car, right? You you would probably, you would call Tesla and have them deliver it with one of their cars for, uh, for, Five for fifty cents or something, but uh, I'll just quickly go through why it's strange because I want to move on to something related. But why it's strange? Most CEOs don't wouldn't even think about putting out a tweet that right. says we've got this secret master plan. It almost sounds like evil geniusy. And even if some CEOs would consider it, I can't imagine very very many other CEOs who would do it and be treated so seriously by the market that their stock would go up four percent, which is a billion dollars worth of value in Tesla's case. Like. If U.S. Steel CEO went out and tweeted that, I think he'd be laughed off the face of the earth. His stock would probably go down. Uh, But related. So obviously some people think that this is going to be the autonomous, the electric-powered autonomous car public transport thing. Related note, the SEC revealed an investigation uh, related to the Tesla fatal car crash that happened May 8th. And do you want to hop in here? Uh, You know, I I would say... It's ongoing, so we don't know what the conclusion is going to be. But Tesla did not disclose the crash to investors uh, as uh, immaterial. The the standard of immateriality, I mean, it sounds kind of coarse. Uh, Somebody died. It's clearly material to that person. And with all deference to the importance, it is sort of allegorical. You know, is this this material? And it's a little bit of a term of art. It's not obvious to me that uh, Tesla did something wrong here. Yeah, yeah. So I I think the the big argument is... On Tesla's side, the big argument is, A, our cars have driven 130 miles, 130 million miles mm-hmm. without having a fatal crash. So we're actually, our cars are already better than human drivers. And like Ford doesn't have to put out a press release every time someone dies in a Ford car. And you can kind of see where they're coming from there. But at the same point, it's not a good look for Tesla. The crash happened May 8th. On May 16th, they reported it to regulators. And on May 18th, they sold, I think it was $2 billion worth of shares to the public, including hundreds of millions from Elon Musk's personal account. So it's not a great look to have this kind of, hey, investors are betting that autonomous driving is going to be a part of your future. And we're selling $2 billion of cars while we know we killed some, maybe not we killed someone, we know someone drived using that feat. Mm-hmm. died using that feature and the market doesn't so not a great look but it'll be it's, interesting it, it's not ideal i i want uh, as in all things what matters is the facts i have to say i have a very open mind here in part because i think every key political difference every key scientific difference is do we oppose something because it is sad or when the counterfactual is worse. It's and, great. and I think that half the political spectrum, I think half of the less serious scientific spectrum is we need to act as soon as something's sad. Yep. Uh, and and, and uh, damn the counterfactuals. And I think that you always and everywhere have to fixate on the counterfactuals and say, if we are trying to solve a certain problem, if, if we can stipulate that there's going to be a million miles driven, yep. is bad better than worse? It's such a great point on your part. And it's going to be interesting to see how regulators, politicians, everyone handles this going forward. Like self-driving cars are scary and it's scary to think, oh, a computer's driving. But if self-driving cars are a hundred times better than humans, which they're already, it seems a little bit better and they're just going to get much better over time. Like it, it. 
to me, it's worth going there. It's going to be interesting how regulators and politicians accept that or if they just kind of throw the gates up and abandon uh, and block them. And for a long time, if you look at cars replacing, replacing horses, for a long time, uh, politicians and regulators were throwing gates up at cars. It'll be interesting if they do something similar there, with... Uh, there, there, was, there was a concern that what would happen to the physical body yep. once the railroads had trains going 30 miles an hour. Would you kind of just disintegrate? Uh, and uh, I think some of the uh, concern about autonomous vehicles has a similar level of seriousness. There was a law in Pennsylvania. They were so worried about what would happen to horses when cars came around that... It was, if you're driving a car and you see a horse in the distance, you need to stop your car, disassemble it, hide it behind a tree, <laughs> and let the horse pass so that the horse isn't scared of cars. So obviously, there have been ridiculous regulations before. There will be again in the future. Hopefully, it doesn't kind of prevent something that will save a lot of lives. Yeah. Uh, so last one, and I think this is the most relevant to investing, uh, on combining with SolarCity. Uh, in late June, Tesla announced a stock-for-stock deal to merge with SolarCity. We mentioned this in our June 24th podcast. And on the merger call, Elon Musk said it was something he had, and this is quotes, bandied about with large shareholders before. Uh, He said, it's completely natural for me to talk to my shareholders. Uh, And just as one example, there was a Fidelity PM who in a Q1 letter said, we think there'd be huge synergies if uh, there was a merger between Tesla and SolarCity. And that PM just happens to be the second largest mutual fund investor in Tesla, the largest mutual fund investor in SolarCity. You can kind of see that he probably talked to Elon Musk about this. And it raises a huge gray area. And I'll let you talk about that. You know, you have to uh, think about the appearance of impropriety and actual impropriety. Uh, let me talk about both of those. Uh, first of all, I love the Seth Klarman standard of if a if an intelligent and unfriendly journalist was going to write about this in the Wall Street Journal, you know, trying to stay far away from the lines. Mm-hmm. Warren Buffett mm-hmm. talks about the same thing too. I mean, I think this is problematic in terms of the appearance, and therefore, was it a good idea to say no? Uh, now, taking a step further, was there impropriety here? Uh, again, it all depends on the facts. I would say that I have. Have a ton of sympathy. Uh, he's still a citizen in a republic with a First Amendment right to talk to the people he wants to talk to about ideas. Yep. So if yep. nothing had happened concretely, the idea that you can have a two-way... We don't want to have leaders that we insulate and say these are going to be the second sec, second class citizen that can't have normal two-way conversations with the people they rely on, many of whom are going to become investors. Along the same... Look, as we are shareholders, that is our, our day job and what we spend the most of our thinking about, and, you know, our CEOs, we would hope they only do deals that we like and support. Yeah. And a lot of times they need to talk. They, they want to talk to you like, what would you think about us, you know, going into this industry? And we do like that. Like the CEO doesn't want to come out with a deal and then have it widely panned. And we don't want that either. Right. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to have some form of flow. Uh, but on the other hand, if a CEO came to us and said, like, hey, what do you think about us buying Company X? And we said, we think that's a great idea. We went out and bought Company X. And the next week, uh, the next week, uh, our CEO bought, bought them out. Like, it would not be a good look for anyone. So No. And so it's just there's this line where something starts off as hypothetical, a conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then once something practical is happening, somebody in the unusual circumstance of being CEO of two different public companies yeah. uh, then needs to stop. And then, of course, there's the second level of issue of it can be interpretable when somebody goes from being conversational to being lawyered up and kind of uh, constipated sounding about a certain issue. Uh, but, uh, you know, boy, it's tricky because at some there's some point at which something hypothetical becomes practical. And obviously this is like uh, all the way out in the gray area, but th- just talking to CEOs can be seen as a gray area. Uh, there's plenty of research that shows that uh, investors who have face-to-face meetings and talk to CEOs 
outperform individuals who don't do that. And there are there's a lot of evidence that investors are very good at picking up when something's bothering a CEO. And I've got two examples here. And actually, this is one that was uh, kind of helping CEOs. In 2013, a bunch of analysts had dinner with Regions Bank two or three days before the results of a Fed test was a Fed stress test was going to come out, mm-hmm. and a lot of the analysts came out and raised their stock rating to buy on the heels of that dinner, saying, "Oh my God, Regions seems so confident that this was not going to be a problem. They're going to pass the stress test with flying colors." Sure enough, Regions passed the stress test and was able to raise their dividend. And in 2013, on the bad side. A bunch of investors had a breakfast meeting with J.C. Penney's CEO at the time, and one of them said, how are you feeling about your capital position? And they interpreted his answer as very uncomfortable, and uh, shares fell 15% just on that uncomfort. Two days later, J.C. Penney turned around and sold a bunch of shares in a stock offering, and their shares fell even further. So it raises a ton of gray areas. I'll let you have the last word here if you want to say anything. Uh, I just think that it's a balance. Uh, one should be really far away from any appearance of impropriety, but regulators and society also needs to be careful to not make our leaders weird because yep. they can't uh, communicate. There's mutual benefit in investors and CEOs being able to talk to each other. It's just uh, it's a crazy gray area and really interesting. All right, so Chris, we've got four to five minutes to talk about politics. I drove most of the Tesla Solar City discussion. I think there's a lot interesting going on with the Republican rules committee, the VP pick, everything. I'll let you take it from here and I'll jump in if I have anything. It's certainly interesting. I need to be a little careful here because things were happening live right up until the mm-hmm. minute we started to record. So maybe we'll just record a couple different versions of this <laughs> and then we'll go live with the crowd. Well, I'll just say Pence is the VP. Gingrich is the VP. Christie's the VP. And we'll have gotten it right in some form. <laughs> One of them rather. Uh, so it appears uh, the prediction markets currently have a Pence listed uh, with a high probability, 85% or so. There were there were a bunch of news leaks today too that said he's probably the pick but you know we reserve our and the Trump was releasing we reserve the right to change our mind at the last second. So yes. yeah. And so they're trying to keep it interesting. You know a true reality TV <laughs> impresario is running the process. We'd expect point. nothing less from the host of Celebrity um, Apprentice. So I would say uh, this uh, he does not have a speaking slot at this convention. Yes. This strange strange convention that has not had a schedule or speakers to the last minute. The whole thing is out Ad hoc, ad hoc, uh, uh, in, in, a, in a way that is, I think, does not have priors. Uh, but Pence is a fairly normal Republican. He's a normal conservative Republican. Kind Very of, conservative. Uh, yep. He looks uh, and uh, sounds and is kind of generic Republican. In a year where such a person at the top of the ticket, they would be crushing Hillary Clinton. At the bottom of the ticket, it makes not that much difference. Uh, if you're a news junkie, I'm a news junkie, and a political junkie, I am too. Uh, you know, this might be the kind of thing you enjoy thinking about but if you don't want to think about it you don't have to because it doesn't matter that much it's not clear that this is going to have an impact on indiana indiana will almost certainly not have an impact on the winner of the electoral college so it doesn't really matter yeah and it's interesting you know if you're trump and i'm not sure how much he thinks about game theory but uh i'm sure how much he thinks about game theory what's that i'm sure how much he thinks about just i don't know you mentioned he's a very traditional conservative candidate i would think you want someone who i guess trump himself mixes it up but i would think you want someone who can help you in a swing state or could help you with some swing voters it just seems to me like this is a campaign with a very small chance of winning and it doesn't do anything to kind of increase its optionality or upside i think that is fair but there's still a lot of work to do just to nail down 
uh, traditional conservative Republicans. I mean, yep. They haven't even accomplished that. So defensively, in theory, it has some advantage. No, this was not a creative... Uh, it doesn't make more sense upon further consideration. And you mentioned that there's the all the meetings with the Republicans' convention, the Republicans' Rules Committee going sure. on right now that has a very, very outside chance of like kind of blocking the Trump nomination. Do you think he picked someone super conservative just to kind of put that last-minute... Uh, ease onto the Republican uh, Rules Committee that he was going to kind of walk the party path? It helps. Most of the anti-Trumpers in the Rules Committee are to Trump's right. So in in theory, kind of a normal Republican, normal within the Republican Party. uh, And you say very conservative, but he's within the kind of spectrum within the party uh, uh, that that, that would fit most Rules Committee members. Uh, I believe the Rules Committee needs to be in the high 20s to get a minority report that goes out to the convention generally. Mm-hmm. And I believe they're in the low 20s. Now, yeah. you, it's a little hard to tell because if you're the marginal member, you don't necessarily want to enunciate a losing position at the last yep. minute. Yep. Uh, everybody wants to be on the winning side. But it appears that there are a few votes short. The market is saying uh, that they fail with about a high 80s probability, low teens probability that they succeed. I think that's about right. You know, even that feels high to me just because when you're talking about changing the rules to prevent a candidate just you know it, it, it's such a change to historical well, go ahead well back to game theory uh they are in the latest prediction market about uh, uh hillary's about a two to one favorite mm-hmm. uh in an election where all of the fundamentals favor the republicans being at least 50 50 what, what fundamentals a, a, a third election a third election yep yep uh, a, a a good not great economy yeah uh and a uh nominee who's upside down in favorability yeah so just hand me those three things and i can win and these are people who are making a voluntary decision in a committee to be uh to to be in the 30s in something that they can make a voluntary decision to be in the 50s yeah all good points though i think the demographic trends have gone so far against the republicans that they not yet they haven't really done much to kind of increase their 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 demographic deficit. Oh, a decade to decade, absolutely. I mean, I think that Texas is going to be a reliably blue state in about a decade yeah. or so. Uh, but a, a, a normal Republican, uh, one might be philosophically I mean, want, to, want to improve things, but but a normal Republican could soundly defeat Hillary Kasich Clinton. was beating Hillary pretty pretty soundly in the polls when mm-hmm. he was uh, still in the race, but and the Republicans rejected him, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, so you could play you could you could play a small ball game. It's just Trump can't do that with his VP pick. Yep. yep. Okay, great. So I think we'll we'll obviously have more to talk about uh, on this next week. We'll wrap it up there. That's all the time we have today. Uh, before we hit our disclosures, just a reminder, if you like this podcast, please be sure to follow and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Audioboom. If you have any feedback for us, please feel free to email it to us at podcast at rangelycapital.com. We've gotten all sorts of interesting emails. We've got some from Australia. I believe uh, South Africa was one. So we've got listeners all over the world. Really appreciate it. Uh, disclosures, I don't have any. And Chris, you mentioned it earlier, your short Tesla and Solar City. And Trump. <laughs> and Trump. I, actually, I'm short Trump as well. So uh, that's it. And we will talk to you guys next week.